Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. We're starting a new series today called Ready or Not, Here I Come. And we're going to look at three parables together that are outlaid in Matthew chapter 25. Now, Matthew 25 is a discourse or a continuation of a discourse that Jesus began in uh, Matthew chapter 24. And 24 is a result of an experience that was happening in chapter 23. So in chapter 23, they were in the temple and uh, with the disciples, other followers, and Jesus in chapter 23 is pretty much just going after, laying into the religious leaders of the day. And he was uh, pretty much teaching the disciples uh, this principle, which seems weird to me, but it plays out in the end. He pretty much said to them, do not do as they do. So he said to the disciples about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, do not do as they do, do as they say. Now that seems to be counterintuitive intuitive to anything my mother taught me, but this is the principle Jesus was trying to get off. And this is how it goes. He's like, they, they teach the word of God. They teach the teachings of Moses. They teach the word. Do that. Do as they say. Do that. But they have added so many extra external things to make themselves look spiritual, to make themselves look holy, to make themselves look like they, they've got it all together. He says, I, I don't want you to do that. They, they, they've, they have the appearance of being, they, they have a big Bible, they, they wear a big cross, they have the honk, if you love Jesus, bumper sticker on the back of their vehicle. We've met those people. They have the form of godliness. And, and he says, look, I don't want you to do that. I want you to listen to what they teach you because the word is strong, but their behavior is bad. So do as they say, don't do as they do. And in that, Jesus pretty much in laying into the religious people of the day, gives seven woes. Like seven, a woe is not good. And now a woe is not like, whoa. A woe is like, yeah, you're really, really messed up. I, the way Eugene... Peterson has translated it. He says this, you're hopeless, you religious scholars and Pharisees, you are frauds. So Jesus was saying to the religious people of his day, you are hopeless, you religious scholars and Pharisees, you are frauds. And at the end of an incredibly intense and passionate discourse by Jesus, he leaves the temple with the disciples. Now, the disciples are there. I don't know whether, I'm guessing the atmosphere was pretty tense. And so they're walking off with Jesus. They're probably like, oh, we don't really know what to say. So as they're going out of the temple, at least one of them to try to break the tension, he's like, hey, how about that temple? Like, I know those guys are messed up, but hey, look at the, the temple's pretty cool because it was impressive. It was built, it was a very impressive site. And so they're like, those guys might be messed up. Uh, what they're teaching is, is good, but the temple, look at the temple, the temple. Just I, If it's me, I'm trying to break the atmosphere there. Then Jesus pretty much turns around and says, listen, 
Everything you see there is going to be pulled down. Every stone is going to be thrown. Even the big boulders are going to be thrown down the hill. And that took place. Of the, he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so they're in the temple area. He's like laying it into the religious people. They're trying to break the ice. And they're like, look at the temple. And he's like, well, it's not going to last very long. Enjoy it while you've got it. Then they go on about a 30-minute walk. They end up at the Mount of Olives. And if you've never been to the Mount of Olives, a very unashamed promotion of our Israel tour uh, later this year. We're going in November, late November into December. If you want to join us, you can get all that information out at the Connect desk there. And people have been asking me, can we invite our friends if they don't come to the church? A word of life, can they come? And the answer is yes. We'd love to. The more the merrier. It's going to be a really good time praying together, fasting together, believing God together, and, uh, and allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to us. So when they're on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, then they're like, well, one of these things is going to happen. What is the sign of your coming? When will be the end of the age? And these questions, because they're a mixture of things to come, things haven't yet happened, and things that were going to happen fairly immediately leads to a very mixed conversation. Most theologians, when they read through chapter 4, are going to talk about this thing he is talking about now, and this is talking about the future. It's like, it's like a jumble sale of all different things that are going to happen. And, and, and Jesus talks about some of the things that would happen in the disciples' lifetimes. Jesus talks about some events that would just become routine history that happen in their life and their children's children and their children's children's children, and they happen today. Famines, pestilence, wars, rumors of wars, all sorts of things are gonna happen as a part of routine history. Uh, he talks about events that will be a part of the whole process of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in that chapter and in chapter 25, so in chapter 24 and in chapter 25, two end time themes are clearly laid out for us. The first one is verse 36. He says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Second theme is in verse 44. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming. Everyone say, is coming. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Two clear themes. No one knows and you better be ready. No one knows, and you better be ready. These two things are really important, and probably for me, no one knows, and you better be ready. The, the, the main reason I don't spend a lot of time preaching uh, uh, or focusing on end-time doctrine. Why? Because no one knows. Everything to date is conjecture. We're trying to work it out, but the Bible is clear, no one knows. And if accuracy of knowing when Jesus would return was vitally important to God, then Jesus would not have kept it a secret. The fact that he kept it a secret and said only the Father knows is a clear indicator that it is important, but more importantly is that you and I would be ready. 
Now, many biblically sound theologians believe in the rapture of the church, but they disagree on the timing of the rapture. And this is one of the reasons why, personally, I don't get into a lot of it, is because some of it is just conjecture. We're trying to read into the Scripture, which sometimes is difficult, especially when it comes to end-time things, because they're, listen, when the Bible was written, it was written to the audience that was going to listen to it then. So when Paul wrote the book of Timothy, he was writing it to Timothy and to that church. That was the audience he was addressing. Now, can it address us 2,000 years later? Yes. Why? Because the Word of God is living and powerful and active. It's not just, it's not a textbook. It's God-breathed. So when Paul was writing a letter to Timothy, in his mind, he's just writing a letter to Timothy. He is not writing the Bible. If he was writing the Bible, then most of his introductions would probably be slightly different. Most of his introductions are like, hey, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle called by Jesus. I didn't call myself. He called me. He's giving his credentials trying to impress you with his credentials. If he was trying to impress you and get your attention with his credentials and he knew he was writing Bible, then I think he would have added that in. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. Pretty important. Chosen by God. By the way, this letter, more than a letter. Holy Spirit's breathing on me. Boom, it's gonna become the Bible. Word of God. You read it now, this is gonna be reading it 2,000 years from now. Why? Because God is awesome in me. He would do something like that. God's breathing on him. And so when it gets to the book of Revelation, John was writing it to the people of that day. But it's also, because it's a prophetic book, able to speak to us today. Isaiah the prophet wrote to the people of his day. But that prophecy, I read out a part of the prophecy today that still applies to us today. Also, because some of the Bible is allegory and some of it is just the text that you can take it literally and trying to work out when those two uh, are are operating is also difficult. So when it comes to deciding the rapture, pre-trib, mid-trib or post-trib, I would suggest to you, no one knows the hour or the day. I'm what you call pan-trib. I just believe it's all gonna pan out in the end. I don't profess to be an expert on the second coming of Christ. We know it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But we, all we need to do is we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. Get ourselves ready. That's, that's the purpose of this series, help to get you ready. If you know people, uh, uh, Christians that aren't ready, get them into church over the next couple of weeks. We're going to get ourselves ready for the rapture, ready for the second coming of Jesus together. Christmas 1971, I grew up in Townsville, North Queensland. Christmas 1971, on Christmas Eve, we were hit by Cyclone Althea. Cyclone Althea uh, had wind gusts of up to 140 miles an hour. And I remember the days before the cyclone hit that there was this warning that would play over the television and over the radio that would then come with an announcement to tell us where the cyclone was. So we knew the cyclone was coming. We didn't know when it was going to be there. We didn't know what time it would hit, but we knew inevitably it was on a collision course with our city. So even though we didn't know the time, even though we really didn't even know the day, all we knew was this cyclone is heading right at us. And so my, my parents got us cyclone ready. They got, the, they got the windows ready. They went out and bought extra uh, water. They, they got 
you know, extra batteries for the flashlight, candles, food supplies. So we couldn't do anything to stop the inevitable, but we could get ourselves prepared. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, the discourse of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is pretty much saying to us, my return is gonna happen. You can go to the bank on that. You may not know the hour or the day, but you can know this. You can be confident in this, that it is inevitable. And just like those cyclone warnings that were letting us know that the cyclone was gonna cross the coast, so the word is full of scripture that are like cyclone warnings. They are rapture warnings, second coming warnings to let the church know that ready or not, he is coming. He's not waiting on you to be ready. He is coming. The hour and the day we don't know, we know he's coming and our responsibility is just to be ready. My responsibility as a pastor, I can't tell you exactly when he's coming, but I can tell you that he is coming and I can tell you, you better be ready when he comes. So here is, in chapter 25, there are three parables. What I would call the rapture readiness parables. And here's the first one, the parable of the 10 virgins. And we learn this, we need to understand who's who in the parable. Understanding who the players are in the parable is incredibly important. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So we have 10 virgins and we have a bridegroom in the parable. Now, in the parable and in the scripture, Jesus is always the bridegroom. John the Baptist said this about Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, this is John the Baptist, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John the Baptist, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine announcing the bridegroom is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, if Jesus is the bridegroom and then bridegroom needs a bride, then who is the bride? The church is the bride. Revelation chapter 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Everyone say ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Second Corinthians chapter 11. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, the bride, the pure bride is a virgin. But in the wedding custom of the Jewish people, the virgins were also a part of the bridal party. So you had the groom, you have the bride, and then you have the virgins. Our modern way of describing that in our culture would be bridesmaids, the bridal party. And so in this parable, the 
church, we are both the bride and we are the ten virgins in this parable. Now, the virgin's job, they didn't have a watch, they didn't have a diary, they couldn't set a reminder on Siri, uh, and there was no guarantee that the bridegroom would come on the time that they expected him to come. But the virgins, their responsibility was make, to make sure that when the bridegroom did arrive, that the bride was ready. That was their number one responsibility. So the virgins serve the bride, minister to the bride, prepare the bride, but technically they are not the bride. The virgins in this parable, <coughs> even though that's a little confusing, but they are the church. Now, let me explain it to you so you, you pick it up. The church is the bride, the church local, the church global, and the church generational. Last week, we spoke about the church generational. We talked about the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven, rushing mighty wind, church's birth. And since that day, the church has continued to grow. 2,000 years later, we are the church. The churches span 2,000 years of history. Then you've got the church global. That's the bride of Christ. When the church was birthed, the command was to go into all the world and make disciples of all the world. And all these, year late, all these years later, that's what's happening. Churches are being planted. Lives are being changed. The kingdom of God is advancing. The assembly of God as a movement spans nations. Other denominations span nations, independent to churches. Also have planted churches around the nations. The church is the church generational and the church is also the church global. But the church is also the church local. That's the bride of Christ. The, the bride of Christ in Washington, D.C. is the church. Now, while Word of Life is a church, it's not technically the church. So Word of Life, Emmanuel Bible Church, uh, Burke Community Church, uh, Christ Chapel National Community, you put any of the other churches in town that are in the DMV area, they are churches, but they're not the church. Collectively, we are the church. So as we worship today, we join with other Christians all around the city offering up worship of the bride to the bridegroom. So the church collectively is the bride of Christ. So who then are the virgins? We are the ones who are called to prepare the bride, serve the bride, make sure the bride is ready when the bridegroom comes. Our responsibility is when the bridegroom comes for the church that you and I have worked, we've labored, we've given, we've served, we've loved, we, we've, we've given ourselves to make sure that the bride, the church, is ready to go with the bridegroom. Now, just remember, that's a parable. Don't try to get into great doctrinal, theological. Mm. He's telling a story. It's like, Jesus like, hey, once upon a time, there were 10 virgins and there was a bridegroom. That, that's what it is. It's a parable. So he's trying to give us a principle based on the foundation of chapter 24, which is no one knows the day nor the hour and 
You won't know, but you better be ready. And so he goes into a parable to make sure that the church is ready. Second, we need to determine what side of the dividing line we're going to live on. Because this is what he said in verse 2. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now, when he was doing the 50-50 split, he wasn't saying word of life church is wise and Emmanuel Baptist Church uh, Bible Church is foolish. He's just saying in those churches, in the church, there are going to be wise people and they're going to be foolish people. There are going to be people that are prepared and they're going to be people that are unprepared. And so he gives us this context of 10 virgins split right down the middle and it's not always so numerically obvious. So don't, don't, don't get into our... These guys here are all going to be in it, and you guys here. It doesn't work like that. He's just trying to give an illustration. Other illustrations, he talks about wheat and tares. He talks about wise and foolish. He talks about faithful and lazy. He talks about sheep and goats. So the 50-50 split with the virgins is not necessarily taking, uh, uh, talking about any particular churches or denominations, but it's speaking on the preparedness of the heart of the people in those churches. So our job, Word of Life, is not to criticize any other church in town or talk bad about any other ministry. Our responsibility is not to say anything about... Our responsibility is to look after ourselves. Make sure that we're ready. Make sure that we're on point. Make sure that when the bridegroom comes, that you and I collectively are going to go together when he arrives. Now, he says five wise, five foolish, and technically, hermeneutically, the number five probably has little value. But, but if it's a split, and if this is talking about wise and foolish, if this is talking about uh, the way people live, it's, if it's talking about attitude, if it's talking about habit, if it's talking about behavior, if it's talking about kingdom commitment or Christian culture, then the five could speak to us in a variety of ways. We know uh, from numerology that the number five is the biblical number of grace. So it could be people that choose a culture of grace versus people that choose a culture of works or people that choose a culture of liberty versus versus people that choose a culture of legalism or people that choose a culture of love versus people that choose a culture of judgment. Uh, One of the early church fathers, when he looked at this, he said, well, it's interesting that we have five senses. We have five senses, touch, taste, smell, see, and hearing. And so maybe the number five says some people are going to live with their natural senses, the flesh, versus others that are going to live with their spiritual senses. So people that are going to be spiritually alert versus people that are consumed with their flesh. The number five is the number of fingers that make up on our hand or digits on our hand. And so it could easily be uh, Christians that live with their hands open versus Christians that live with their hands closed. Christians that are generous, we've been talking about our, our heart for the house offering where we are, we are taking up an offering so we can do some things that we need to do in our church, like fix our parking lot, 
fix the lights in the parking lot, renovate some of our children's wing. We have a whole heap of projects that we need to do. And the reason we need to do it is our hands are open to our community. And we're saying, we want you to come and we want to prepare a place for you to come here as Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us there. Versus keeping our hands closed, saying, well, I'm good. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't need any, I don't, I don't need a parking lot. I like the potholes. I think the potholes are cool. You don't even know what I do with those potholes. Potholes are great. Last week, I filled one pothole up with water, baptized my friends. You don't. Fist closed versus hands open. The hand can either reach out to bless our community or the hand can push away and say, we're holy. We don't want anybody here. The five ascension gifts are, are repre- could be represented. You have the apostle. Uh, you have... You have the the prophet, you have the evangelist, you have the pastor, you have the teacher. Ephesians talks about the ascension gifts. Jesus rose and gave gifts to the church. He gave gifts of leadership to the church. He didn't give those people the gift of an evangelist or the gift of an apostle or the gift of being a pastor. That's not their gift. They have a calling to be that, but they are the gift to the church. Why are they the gift of the church? To raise up the church to do the work of the ministry. So the ascension gifts are given to the church to prepare the church to do the work of the ministry so the bride can be ready. The ascension gifts are there to motivate the virgins to be wise and to be on point and to be ready for the second coming. So we need to live in a constant state of engagement. Matthew chapter 25, 3 and 4, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks, plural, took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now, the lamp is the container that carried the fire and then the flask carried the oil and you needed both. You needed the the lamp and you needed the oil. The Bible says that the Word of God is a lamp to our feet. The Holy Spirit is the oil, We need the Bible and we need the Spirit. We need to be people in the Word and we need to be people of the Holy Ghost. And we need to make sure that as we're walking through this life that we are are taking an extra portion of the Holy Spirit. I, I believe the extra oil is we come to church, we get the Word, we get the Holy Ghost, but it's gotta be more than Sunday morning. It's got to be more than Sunday morning. Monday, I need the Word and I need the Holy Ghost. Tuesday, I need the Word and I need the Holy Ghost. Wednesday, I need the Word and I need the Holy Ghost. You get my point. You're not going to survive if it's only on a Sunday morning. And I'd encourage you, it's really not going to survive if Sunday morning is only something you do every now and then. I pretty much been in church every Sunday of my Christian life since I got saved nearly 40 years ago. Now, obviously, some Sundays I'm watching it online because I'm on a holiday or something like that. But if I got the opportunity to be in the house of God, I'm going to be in the house of God, whether I'm preaching or not preaching. I've been in the house. Why? Because I want to be in the Word. I want to be in the Holy Ghost, and I want to be with His people. So they took extra oil. We need to be extra, not extra in our behavior, 
but we need to be a little extra in our Bible reading. We need to be a, a little extra in our, in our prayer. Wednesday night, we've got our Holy Ghost nights. I love our Holy Ghost nights. We do them three times a year. We dedicate a whole month of Wednesday nights, seven o'clock Wednesday night in the chapel, coming together, laying hands on people, prophesying over people, believing for an infilling of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we're a little bit extra. We're Pentecostals. We want the Holy Spirit and power. We want more than just a Sunday morning. We want what God does throughout the rest of the week. We need to live in a constant state of expectation. We need to live in that state. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, we don't read into this like that's a problem because it got late and it's natural to sleep. It's natural to have a rest. We shouldn't be driven. So we don't need to read anything into it other than the fact that there was a delay. And the delay meant that people started to, to question, is the bridegroom really coming? For us, the delay is that gap between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' second coming. But Jesus is pretty clear about his delay. In the following parable, he talks about a master giving a commission to three servants, and it says, and the master went away for a long time. So he never said it was going to be short. He said it's going to be a long time. So no one knows the hour nor the day. The only thing that we know was going to be a long time. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? You probably have friends have said that to you. If Jesus said he's coming back, when's he going to come back? They were having that conversation in that day 2,000 years ago. Peter wrote, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So to, to God, God can say it's going to happen now and it can happen 500 years from now and he doesn't lie because God's in the consistent now. He is light. We measure light. Darkness gives us time. He is consistent light. So he, God lives in a timeless void. God doesn't have past or future. God has now. You and I technically never have a now. We have past and future, but we don't have a now. Even the now that I said a moment ago is now in the past. Even this one coming now, it happened then, but it's not like that's now, that now, now is a past now. I can talk about some future nows that are going to come. Like here comes a future now. Now, that was in the future. Well, I thought about that now, but now it's in the past now. So the Bible's saying that God lives in that state of now. And so to him, a day's like a thousand, a thousand's like a day. He is not contained in time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come like a thief. But the reality is no one knows the time. Many end time experts have tried to come up with the date. How Lindsay predicted that Jesus would return in the 1980s and no later than 1988. Edgar Weissnat predicted that Jesus would return 
to rapture his church sometime during the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah in 1988, which was sunset September 11 to sunset September 13. When it didn't happen, he moved it to October 3, 1988. 88 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1988 was a huge seller in 87. Didn't do that great in 89. Harold Camping, a general manager of Family Radio, said Jesus would come in 1994. Jerry Falwell said it would be in 1999 or the next 10 years. Bed Dobson, Timothy Dwight, Edgar Case said Jesus would come in the year 2000. Barry Smith, who was a phenomenal Bible teacher and a wonderful man of God. He's gone to be with the Lord now. He was a New Zealander and he taught on end time doctrine. I, I grew up, I was spoon fed end time doctrine by Barry Smith as a young Christian because the church I went to as a young Christian were all believing that the rapture could happen at any moment. And we, we listened a lot to Barry's teaching. It used to freak me out as a young Christian. I remember they preached, we may not even get out of service today. You could be halfway walking out, and the truth was that could happen. We may not even get out of service today. No one knows the hour or the time, and you can predict all you like. Barry Smith predicted that Jesus would come at midnight on January 1, the year 2000, with the millennium bug and was horribly wrong. But here's the reality. Even though these people were incorrect, accuracy is not the goal. Readiness is the goal. It's going to happen, but being right is not as important as being ready. Being right, having it marked down is not as important as being ready. The bridegroom is going to come. You better be ready when he comes. One of my first weddings I did was in New Zealand, and the first guy actually Danny Favusu, who got saved in our church, got married to Tracy. Beautiful couple, wonderful people. And, uh, and so I was doing the wedding, and it was like 11 o'clock in the morning, I think, and uh, I was outside the church because Danny hadn't arrived. And then the car pulls up, and it's Tracy with her uncle and ready for the wedding. And so I said to her, uh, Trace, uh, Danny hasn't arrived yet. He was Samoan. They're sort of like pretty predictably going to be late, part of the culture or something. And so Danny's not here yet. Um, no, he loves you. He's going to come. Don't, don't panic. But you may want to go and do another lap. And so they went and did another lap and came back about 15 minutes later, pulled out out the front. And I was out the front waiting for Danny. And I said to Tracy, uh, Trace, uh, he's not here yet. Um, you may want to do another lap. I know he's coming. We've called. Something happening with his mom. Got to get him here. We're trying to get him all here. They're going to get here. We can't start without him. So can you do, can you do another lap? And so they went and did another lap. And I think this went on for like 45 minutes. It was a really long time. I remember them coming back on one lap. And I said, hey, Trace, he's not here yet. He's on his way. We know they're on their way. They left the house. They're on the way. But you may want to go out and do another lap. And the uncle started yelling at me, we're going in. We're going in and having a wedding. We're going and I'm like, hey, bro, chill. She can't marry air. You need a bridegroom here. Just do another lap. You're going to be married a long time. Extra 15 minutes is not going to hurt you. 
And so they went and did another lap. And when they did another lap, Danny had arrived with his family and were able to start the wedding. There, there was a delay, but the wedding was going to start. I want to encourage you, you know, just do another lap. The, the bridegroom's not here yet, but just do another lap. Live another year, live another decade, live another day. Be somebody that is ready for the arrival of the church. The people in the early church were expecting Jesus to return in their day. So, it, so understandably, it created for them some level of anxiety of, okay, we're waiting for Jesus' return in our generation, but my Uncle Phil died last week. What's going to happen to Uncle Phil? We're waiting, we're waiting for Jesus' return. We're expecting to come now, but my wife just passed, my, my dad passed, my granddad they, they love the Lord. What's going to happen to them? So Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. So he's referring to people that have passed as people that have gone to sleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. If you've lost a loved one and they're asleep in Christ, I want to encourage you. It's okay to grieve. We need to grieve but we don't grieve like there is no hope. We grieve as people that have hope. How many of you are grateful for the hope that we have in Christ? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we're here alive waiting for the second coming and those that have gone to sleep pretty much technically already have their second coming because they're going to wake up from their sleep and Jesus is going to be there. They are sleeping, waiting in Christ. We need to understand that when it comes to the rapture, the second coming of, of Christ, that, that there are two timers in operation. Matthew chapter 25, verse 6 says, But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So the, the, the timers work like this. I, I think the end time timer of God is both a, a, a stopwatch and a, a countdown clock. The groom comes at midnight. There is a time that the Father knows we're going to wrap this sucker up. And in heaven, there's a countdown clock. Son doesn't know, Holy Spirit doesn't know, Father knows there's a countdown clock. We don't know there's a countdown clock. We, living on planet Earth, have a stopwatch. And since Jesus was ascended, the stopwatch starts, and we live in the stopwatch, which is called chronological time. The countdown clock exists in eternity. While we live on this earth, the stopwatch meant that I had a day yesterday, I got a day today, hopefully I've got a day tomorrow. We're not guaranteed of any days, but we have days to measure our life by. Pastor Kova preached his last sermon. He started a three-part series. He felt that he had more days in his life, so he started a three-part series. It was his 
birthday when he started the three-part series. And people I spoke to here, that new Pastor Kova, hung out with him on that day, said he was healthy, didn't even look sick, looked fine, everything seemed fine. But that was his, the, the stopwatch was going to stop for him. And now he is sleeping in Christ. But we live in this chronological time. So Jesus hasn't come, but we are closer today to his second coming than we were 2,000 years ago. And I personally, I'm closer to his second coming than I was when he was 20. Why? Because the stopwatch is running and the countdown clock is, is happening. So while the stopwatch is happening, we need to be engaged until he returns. We need to be preparing the bride until he returns. We need to be serving the bride, local, global, and generational, until our stopwatch stops. Now, the countdown clock lives in eternity. It's moving towards us. It's God's promise. And at some point, his word in eternity and our living in the chronos are going to collide into a kairos moment. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So Paul's writing, he says, you don't know the day nor the hour, but it's going to happen in a moment, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. We're gone. Rips us out. Tears us out that fast. I remember as a young Christian, that used to freak me out. I'd come to somebody's house. They'd be in the restroom or something and they'd leave the kettle boiling. And I'd walk in, kettle's boiling, no one's around. Did I get left behind? I thought that was a great joke, and so did my mother. So we had this friend, Pat McAuliffe, wonderful woman, great friend of my mother. I affectionately called her Pat on the head. And, uh, and so she would come to our house to visit my, my mum, and we'd see her pull up at the front. We'd have the television on. I'd say, quick, mum, turn on the jug. Mum would turn on the jug. We'd even sometimes lay out clothes and shoes down where we would be sitting. And then my mum and I would just go and hide in a closet together, waiting for her to come in, thinking that she'd missed the rapture. <laughs> Horrible people when you think about it. <laughs> but it's going to happen in the suddenly. Suddenly there's going to come a shout. Suddenly there's going to come a trumpet blast. Suddenly we're going to go out of here. Suddenly. In Acts chapter 2, there was a Suddenly. In Acts chapter 2, the prophecy of Joel that was prophesied into eternity, countdown clock, people living the stopwatch, and then eventually the countdown clock and the stopwatch collided to a Kairos moment, and it said, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind filled the whole place, tongues of fire. We spoke about that last week, and the church was birthed. But it happened with a suddenly. But sadly, the suddenly meant that 380 people were caught off guard. 120 were in the place of receiving the Holy Spirit. Jesus had spoken to 500. That means that 380 missed it, maybe by five minutes, maybe by 15 minutes. Maybe they missed it 
completely, but they missed it. Why? Because they weren't ready when the suddenly happened. There is a suddenly coming. There's a second coming of Christ. A suddenly, it is going to happen. And we are closer to the day than we've ever been before. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. This body is not as real as our spiritual body. Our mistake is we think we're more real than the spirit realm. We think we created the spirit realm, but the spirit realm created us. God is not a figment of our imagination. We are a figment of God's imagination. God imagined us and spoke us into being and formed us. We didn't form God. God formed us and God is a spirit. And if you want to worship God, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. One day this body is going to put off corruption and put on incorruption and immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So we need to care less about being right and be more concerned about being ready. Russell, you can come bring the team. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. So the ten get up and they trim their lamp. They, 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 they turn it up to get some fire, to get some light. They hear the bridegroom, bridegroom's coming. They hear the warning. They trim their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. We had a little bit of light, didn't have enough light. But the wise answered said, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We, we, we do not know what creates the delay of the bridegroom but only foolish virgins would be unprepared they all arose they all woke up they all got ready they all had lamps but the foolish virgins had lamps without oil they had candles without a wick they had flashlights without a battery they had lights but they had no power they had the outward appearance of godliness like the Pharisees that we talked about in chapter 23. They dressed right, they spoke right, they looked right, but they weren't right. You, you'll need to be ready for the bridegroom's return. If you lack intimacy and if you lack passion and if you lack prayer and you lack power and you don't spend time helping us get this bride ready, 
then maybe you won't have enough oil in the lamp. Our job is to be ready. We need to live aware and not let the distractions of life steal our focus. We need to live alert. Don't let the mundane rob your expectation. The same old, same old. Could, uh, you couldn't stay awake with me for one hour, Jesus said. The Bible says two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Live anticipating. Don't get lulled into a sense of false security. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Live active. Don't take his delay as an excuse to live life your own way. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Whom has his master sent over his household to give him food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will send him over all his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know. What is God saying over and over again to us? I'm coming. You're not going to know. It's not your responsibility to, to worry about knowing. Many people have spent a lot of time trying to know, trying to work out end time doctrine. It ends up creating a whole heap of end time conspiracy. I may touch on some of that in the next couple of weeks. But our, our job is we're not going to know the day or the hour. We can try to guess, think about it. Obviously, great men of God before us have tried to do that since the beginning of the church. I just mentioned a few. I could go over the centuries like that, trying to guess his time or who the beast was. But no one knows. Try to work it out. But it's not as important to be right as it is to be ready. As it is to be ready. 